Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. And this uh, about a book, about a band that Bob Geldof, in his heartfelt introduction, says they have slipped down the cracks of pop history and we need to haul them out. They should be revered. And we couldn't agree more, nor obviously could the author of Whatever Happened to Slade, Daryl Easley. Daryl, it's lovely to see you. How you Hello doing? there. Thank you for having me along. What a treat. Not can at I, all. Can I can I butt in with the first question? Because okay. I want, to, I want to start at the start at the end. Let's okay. start with the title. Yes. Whatever happened to Slade? Because I think people that's a genuinely fair question. Because people have been a bit hazy about this, about the exact status of Slade. So here we are, approaching the festive season in two thousand and twenty-three. The, at the time when the whole nation's thoughts turned to Slade, <laughs> yes. when they first hear it playing over the PA in Tesco or whatever. So where are we, 2023? What are Slade? What is going on? I think I think there's two tiers with Slade. There is this incredible festive image that's come through, which is brilliant because it means they are remembered each year. They are there, and the way that that record, and especially Noddy Holder, has achieved this sort of, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to use the phrase national treasure, but I think that is absolutely what he is, a genuine version of it. He's achieved this national treasure status, which has been seen with all, you know, the information of his cancer coming out from five years ago, you know, this wave of love in the media uh, about it. So there's this very, very popular image of Slade as that. But beyond that, apart from a hardcore, there's sort of next to nothing. It's like, oh, yes, you know, they looked funny. Didn't he shout a lot? Mutton chops. All of those sort of reductive things. With sort of forgetting that the real Slade, sort of 72, 73, were as big or bigger than 
Bowie, <coughs> they, they took the mantle from Boland as Boland took it from the Beatles. Slade took it from Boland. You know, they were an enormous band and nobody sort of thinks of Slade as that. They just think of the, the sort of great caricature, which is brilliant because, you know, they're there every year, which sweet aren't or... So, but the all, all four are still with us. Yes, yeah. Which all. is, you know, notable in itself, Absolutely. isn't it? You know, but but Slade is a band. Are they playing anywhere? Do they exist? There's <laughs> just two of them. There's Dave and and Don are still in Slade Two, whatever it's called. No, Don is no Don is not anymore. Don no, was not. Um, left. Uh, or in 2020. So Dave is out with Slade, yeah. and Dave, you know, was born with tinsel in his veins, and he he has to, yeah. he is the showman. Um, so there, he's with three other guys who have been in Slade longer now than, you know, the others were in Slade, yeah. or nearly. Um, all four are alive. You know, it's that classic thing, you know, bands with members not there, all they'd love to do is reunite, and bands where all members are still alive don't get back together for a variety of reasons. Right, right. So do they speak to each other? Oh, I, yes, I think they speak to each other. I mean, there's levels of friendship, you know, between band members. I think they're, you know, professionally, they have to sort of speak to each other from time to time. I don't think they go around each other's houses for cups of tea. Right. Um, but then I don't think they did that at their peak. I think they worked... It out. I, you know, writing the book, I thought about that thing I read as a kid about Eric and Ernie that they never went round each other's houses, and I thought, oh, that's strange, aren't they pals? And of course, they spent so much time together on the road and in venues and all that. They didn't need to. They had this incredible sort of symbiotic relationship where, you know, because you'd love to think, and we all, you know, then remember Vic Reeves what he did with. Slade at home, you know, you you'd love that to be true that you know, yeah, yeah, they were there doing that. So I mean, I think it's 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 certainly cordial between them, but I think the feeling of the four of them getting back together. I mean, you never know, you know, you never know, but it seems less likely. And considering right. all four have all had sort of major medical conditions in the past twenty years. I mean, you know, they're all in mid seventies. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you'd think it would be lovely, but. But there must have been a big rift over the amount of money that, that Noddy and David, uh, uh, Jim rather, had made as the songwriters and that the other two hadn't. I mean, that well, must have been a big division. I mean, I think that there's been a lot made of that in the, you know, it's, it's very, it's been a very easy story to say that. Uh, I mean, yes, it's absolutely true. You know, that Noddy Holder and Jim Lee wrote the songs. I mean, Don wrote some, Dave wrote some, but, you know, they they obviously wrote the Christmas hit together. I mean, the others must get the mechanicals from it, so I'm sure they get a nice little something. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there, there is the different. There's the haves and the have-nots. But I don't think that added to why they split. I think they split because Noddy genuinely felt they'd done all they had to do at that point. And... You know, you think of it, they were together 25 years with the same lineup, which is unusual. You know, you two, not even REM, uh, you can say that. And, you know, they gave a lot in that time and Noddy just had enough. Um, and Going Jim, back, sorry. Sorry, and that played into Jim sort of not being. You know, Jim always looked like he wanted to be in another band anyway. Yes, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> he did, I mean, that, he did. you know. 
He wanted to be an Edgar Broughton or something. Absolutely. Edgar Edgar Broughton brings me to the next (laughs) thing I wanted to ask you about. One of the things I like about this book very much is, um, you know, it covers their early years, which I remember. You know, I remember Ambrose Slade (laughs) putting out an album called Ballsy and all that. (laughs) I remember remember the free song when they got the skinhead haircuts, you know, and then when they re-emerged and so forth. Um, but what they what this book does really well is it covers that time. It's early early part of the book I'm referring to here. Yeah, covers that time when popular music in Britain went through one of its major changes, best uh, characterized by the fact that audiences went from sitting on the floor to standing up. Mm. And this is the thing that you you tell the youth of today this, <laughs> and they don't believe you. Yeah. You know, that when Led Zeppelin went and toured universities and whatever in 1971, people sat on the floor and they, on their bony asses through loon pants on parquet floors or whatever. And so it was, if Slade did anything during <laughs> that time, it was, it was to get those people standing up, wasn't it? Is that fair to say? I think you're absolutely right, and I think it was born of where they had played, where they had done their their work. Um, they had been in, you know, the working men's clubs, the youth clubs, the the pubs of of the the, the West Midlands, the Black Country. You know, the furthest north they'd travelled was Stoke. Um, so you know, and and when you look, I mean, there's a fabulous book um, by a guy called Chris Selby and Ian Edmondson, The Noise, which pieces together all their live stuff. You know they're they're playing all the church halls. They're doing all that, all their various things. So they brought that mentality when they came to London. You know, so they they were smashing grabbers all the time. They lived at home. You know, they're provincial, absolutely provincial, which is why I think the media had the problem with them. Yeah, and they came in and they brought this. You know, right, grab a bird, grab a pine, yeah. dance your ass off, sort of thing. And and where that really is was shown at, was at the Lincoln Festival, which I know you've you both written very eloquently about, where, you know, people were expecting, you know, more heads to be playing. There was some controversy that Slade should be there. And they just went out and Noddy hit them with a battering ram and everyone thought, oh, I can enjoy myself. This is what you can do at a gig. That was a major pivotal moment in their career, wasn't it? Yeah, no, you're right. I was down the front for that. And the whole tenor of that festival was... Roxy Music, Genesis, yeah. uh, the Beach Boys, Focus, the incredible string band. And suddenly came, on came this group who just didn't really belong. And everyone yeah. was really cynical with their arms crossed, going, well, come on, impress me. And they absolutely tore the roof off it. It was incredible. And the press, that was the moment that the press really adopted them, actually. Yes. That, that changed everything. And well, also their, their, their first their kind of breakthrough record is Get Down and Get With mm. It, isn't it? Which, which is that... Put on record, isn't it? Yeah. It starts with a call to arms, isn't it? And so the whole performance becomes about the audience rather than about the band, really, doesn't it? it exactly. It, yeah. Exactly. And that in that inclusivity, you know, for people that saw them and promoters, there's a you know, there's a great quote from Mel Bush, the the promoter in the book, just saying nod, you know, Noddy's rapport with an audience, his sort of mesmeric bringing them in so the four players in the band and the the thousand people in the audience are the same thing uh, and you're there to enjoy yourself you know? well you make that point i think that uh and it's probably something introduced also by Chaz chandler that they never kind of regard them 
their audience, did they? No. And at that time, there were a lot of groups that sort of did, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were there kind of looking down on you, and I'm playing in a seven, eight time signature, and you probably wouldn't understand. And yeah. uh, and they were just part of some whole great celebration. Which but also the audiences thing. were quite prepared to be submissive in those days. At that <clears> point, they, they, they just were, you know. Uh, there was a period of about two or three years where they just thought our job is to just sit here and nod <laughs> and appreciate, you know, and, uh, and and clap in a knowledgeable way at, at the end. Whereas the, this was a very, very different thing, and it hadn't existed for a few years, really. Wouldn't well, no, it? Right back to the sort of Hamburg spirit <clears throat> and the cavern and things like that. It sort of missed all that sort of growing up bit. And I suppose <laughs> also they, they didn't belong to that. They weren't scream idols, were they, really? Is that fair to say? I mean, because they weren't like the Amon Corner or who had been a very big deal. Yes. Not many, not long before, really. They were, they were, they were a kind of, they appealed to blokes, didn't they, as well as girls? They did, and they were quite sort of unique in that because the audience was fairly mixed. It wasn't just, you know, the blokes of prog or the girls that Amen Corner had. I think it was... And in the end, that worked against them because no one quite knew, you know, they, who's, who their audience was and who liked them. But I think they did sort of break that open and you could go and have a good time with them. And I think you did get blokes attracted to that because, you know, there was no androgyny. I mean, yes, you had Dave Hill dressing like, you know, the metal nun or whatever you say. There was not a whiff that he might be anything else than 100% heterosexual. <laughs> That's true. I know, and there was the nothing remotely with... camp about them with their makeup on. It was extraordinary. Well, no, and you think of Steve Priest and then Rob Davis a bit later, yeah. who were the, the sort of parallels to that. Rickies. And you thought, oh, you know, you could just imagine in the 70s vernacular, boys down the pub, what they were saying about them. But Dave Hill were sort of one of us who just like dressing up a bit. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that attracted them in a way that Bowie and Boland wouldn't have done. Um, well, because- when I, that time when I saw them, they'd just been through the major change, really, and they'd sort of become a kind of glam band. And I'm pretty sure that Dave was wearing a silver cape and big silver boots <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure he was. Felt. And I, I wondered, now, obviously, any group going through that kind of image-mongering would have... Consultants and advisors and stylists, you know, who whose ideas were those? Who came up with the idea that, that Noddy would wear the, the check gear and the battered old top hat with the mirrors? Well, I think what people don't necessarily appreciate is when Slade came under the, the management of Chaz Chandler, he brought with him this fabulous sort of showbiz coterie. That, I mean, they work with the absolute best you had the the gunnels who'd come out of the flamingo club and all of that as their agents initially he brought keith altham who'd worked with the who as their publicist gerard mankovitz took their pictures so i mean they, they suddenly were in that league and the skinhead thing you know which is in the book very well known by those that know it you know was it was a joke it was a drunken joke one night between altham and chandler down the pub or down the marquee or wherever and saying you know, skinheads are popular. This band can't get a break. Why don't they become skinheads? And then, so Chaz, you know, was very much a sort of the man of action. The next day, he'd all marched them down the hairdressers <laughs> and they'd all bought their braces and, and off they went. 
And Keith Ortham sort of woke up sober. God, and there they were. No, I don't they really. come in. Hello. Yeah. And far too nice to be skinheads. So, of course, then you had this sort of period of friction where skinheads would go to the gigs and then see Jim, uh, Jim Lee bring out his violin and they did this quite fay version of Martha, my Martha, dear. Martha, my dear. You've got a little data. Um, but then the fashion started to develop. And, and what I love... And it just sums up Slade perfectly. You know, why you had Bowie go into Yamamoto or whatever, designing his big pants. You know, they used a, a lovely guy who's, who's in the book called Steve Megson, who was the son of the publican, the, the pub they used to drink at. So he was, he'd got a degree, which was, you know, in those days, oh, he's got a degree in... Yeah. Passion and art. A burn. Got, got an ology. Yeah, an ology. Exactly. <laughs> and he, so he would design their clothes. And yeah. primarily it was Dave he would design for because Dave just wanted to be seen. <laughs> so, but this whole evolution sort of came from growing out the skinhead look. And that's how Dave kept that, you know, the fringe, because he retained that and yes, then he, you know, the bits at the side. And Noddy going into Tartan and everything was, was, that was being driven far more from the band because it was a bit like when, you know, the skinhead thing, they'd done that. Two of them loved it and two of them hated it. And they didn't want to be sort of managed in that way. So they, you know, took their own path at that point with a very individual take on glam rock. <laughs> But well, I, I I just think that, that Dave actually was the key key element of what made them really appealing. Got everyone talking about that group more actually than Noddy. I mean, I think when they decided they were going to write songs, he said, "Okay, you write them, and I'll sell them." Didn't he? Yeah. He said, "I'm I'm going to be the band salesman," and he did an absolute a very under under recognised, brilliant job. I think. No, no, I completely agree, and I I think. Without him, they would be... I mean, obviously, if they had the Christmas record, that would always be there. But I think they would be well thought of and well regarded and would have been successful. But I think his... You know, I, th I think it's Rob Chapman or someone in the book says, you know, every town had a Dave Hill. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And they could be Dave Hill far easier than they could be Mark Boland. Mm. Um, and that that was the appealing thing. You know, it was who you could mimic in the playground, you know, you, yeah. you could talk about the next day. You could shout like Noddy and you could strut like Dave Hill. Why did they never sell LPs? It seemed to me they never really <laughs> sold albums. It's one of those things because actually you look at their sales and, you know, everyone thinks of 73 as that great divide. You had, you know, Dark Side of the Moon and Tubular Bells to the heads and then you had Slade down here selling to the kids. And I think, you know, that is true. But they did have, uh, you know, three number one albums. And if you look at the bestsellers of 73, you know, uh, Slade from the previous year and Sladeist, that fabulous sort of collection thing, were enormous records. Right. But I'd, apart from Slade Alive, which, you know, which broke them through, which is unusual to break through with a live album, unless yeah, yeah. you're Peter Frampton, um, you had that. And I think 72 was the year where the sort of the heads and the kids aligned and Slade were hip, if you like, for that period. And Slade Alive is like, it's a fact, you know, it's, it's such an amazing album to think it was so big. You know, if you'd heard Cause I Love You at number one and then you bought that, you know, it's you starts with a 10 years after song. I know it does. <laughs> and at the end, you're sort of almost listening to a blueprint of Jesus and Mary Chain where they just overdrive Born to be Wild and then leave the feedback going. You know, it's like, Christ, this is what this is the group who's saying, you know, Merry Christmas, everybody. But there was that thing, they weren't seen as an albums band. You know, you wouldn't, where you'd have, um, you know, Dark Side Under Your Arm, you wouldn't have Old New Borrow and Blue. You wouldn't really. Yeah. So the the other thing they didn't really do, although they tried like crazy, and you, and you, you imply in the book they tried too much, was they didn't break America. No. They tried repeatedly, didn't oh, they? I mean, they well, really did. The Americans just not understand what it was about. It must have been. It must have been incomprehensible actually to somebody who wasn't wasn't British. I think the the not fault, but I think Chaz Chandler had seen because he'd been in the Animals, he'd had his American success. He was contemporary of the Beatles. He'd seen what happened. So you've got. Slade almost following the Beatles template. You know, the time in the clubs break them nationally, break them internationally, bring the film out, you know, all of that thing. So he followed that quite slavishly. <clears throat> and he fully understood that the way you do America is not just drop in for a couple of days, take care of the seaboards, and then that's it, we've done America. You know, he knew you had to work at it. But it comes back to what you were saying earlier, David, about sitting on the floor. America were very much still in the sitting in the floor yeah, they were. <laughs> stage. And what they had, which we didn't have over here to that level, was weed. You know, it was stoner culture there in a way where here it was pockets and hippie and doing that. But Slade... Oh, there's a passage where they support a whole <coughs> pie, I think. Yes. Is. So Slade, you know, Slade's audience is and brown ale. And they're smoking dope, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. And they're there. And, of course, Noddy is used to going out, shouting at people and, and getting everyone to yeah, respond. Yeah. And there's all these guys and girls cross-legged on the floor, peace man, and talk about having your mellow harshed. You know, there it is. <laughs> oh, my God, there's a man in a mirrored hat shouting at me. Yeah. 
and his way of of dealing with that was after a while you know if it if it failed he used to say um if you don't like it go and have a can i say the word s-h-i-t on your seat yeah, you can, yeah. you can say it, you can say it in the newspapers nowadays <laughs> no, that this, is true. this week um, if you don't like it go and have a shit and it's a bit like I, I'm not sure if that's a way to endear yourself to. No, your it's, re- it's rarely proven to work. <laughs> and I think that that in the microcosm is why it never quite happened right. at that stage. Yeah. And then, of course, what they did—they moved there. I mean, they were so committed. Chaz put them into. They all lived in New York between seventy-five and seventy-six. They were there for the independence celebrations of bicentennial. And of course, when they came back. Not only the Bay City Rollers happened to hive off the, the the youth element, but punk was rumbling. And you know, and if you think of a group probably who influenced punk far more at the time, everyone says, "Yeah, it was the Stooges and the Velvets." Now, well, it was for the you know the the culture and six people. Yeah, but it was Slade. You know, you listen yeah. to Pretty Vacant and you hear you know virtually every Slade single. True, uh, they never got any credit for it. People were talking about Boland, weren't they, and Stooges? Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's true. I mean, I think they were, you know, Steve Jones was always there for him. And Joey Ramone, bizarrely, because he, he said the Ramones were modelled on Slade Alive. Yeah. Um, but, you but know, they, they didn't. Were they also adopted by people like scene makers, LA scene makers, like, um, is Kim Fowley in, in here yeah. somewhere? And uh, and Rodney Bingenheimer and you know, yeah. these kind of people. So who came to Britain, heard that kind of music and thought this is really exciting and went back to Los Angeles and started Rodney's English Disco yeah. Yeah. where people danced to that kind of music, didn't they? Which in turn became quite influential in America, didn't it? Oh, without doubt. And, I mean, uh, you know, they singsters like Biggenheimer saw them and, and got that. I mean, Fowley, they, again, that's the remarkable sort of happenstance of Slade is that they came down, it was only their, their, I think, first, I think it was the first gig in London, they played Tiles, uh, sporting Crispian St. Peter's. Yeah, and, hey! <laughs> and Jim Lee saw him in a Anything off the top shelf, you managed to get Kim Fowley, Crispian St. Peter's, and, and, and what's it called, Tiles? Yes. All, all in one sentence. All, all part of the furthest. Yeah, airport. special award. <laughs> but, you know, they, 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 they it was a, their second time down or first time down and they'd been supported by their youth club that had brought put a coach on to, to bring them down and they were supporting Chris Vincent Peters and Jim's in the training dressing room went all right Chris and he did sort of looked at him with some disdain anyway what happened was the, their youth club who'd been used to seeing them in sort of Willenhall baths and things like that went crazy ape when Slade or when the in-betweens came on stage and this was when Fowley was in London sort of being the, you know, looking for the next big thing. And, of course, he saw this and, you know, he said evidently, you guys project! And, um, <laughs> and whipped them into Regent Sound. So their first single was not only, you know, it got them signed to Columbia, they were on Regent, you know, recorded at Regent Sound and produced by Kim Fowley. I mean, it's almost like, what are the chances? Oh, uh, yeah, well, in those days, quite, yeah. quite, you yeah, know, quite, it, yeah. it could... It could happen. Just uh, talk a bit about the, you know, the tragic events of, well, whenever it was, 1973, when, mm. you know, the the um, the car crash with oh, uh, Don Powell and where his, the girl in the car with him was killed. And uh, 
But they kept going, didn't they? I mean, they were... That's the thing that's extraordinary about that, is you try and imagine if that happened today, God, the amount so. of support and time off and consideration. But he was just expected to kind of pick himself up after this terrible... He was, in, I think, in a coma for a while, wasn't he? To come back to the band. He was back in just a few months. Yeah. I mean, six weeks, you know, he sort of convalesced. And then, you know, they had to lift him into the studio... And there's when they did My Friend Stan, which was the first sort of recording afterwards, he was lifted in and Alan O'Duffy, who was the engineer at Olympic, you know, is in the book, and he was, you know, just sort of saying he had to be sort of taught almost beat by beat by um, Jim Lee how to play it. But, I mean, part of that was his doctor said, look, if you don't go back and do it, you might never go back and do it. So there was a sort of, there was some sort of, I mean, he had the best support. I mean, Chandler got the best people in to to, to sort of support him and look at it. But no, you're absolutely right. Nowadays, you know, there would all be well-being stuff for the other members of the band. Because I I think the, the genesis of their sort of split started then, because how do you yeah. comprehend that? Yeah. In that context of that week, where on the Sunday night they'd headlined Earl's Court, only the third band to do it, and they were actually the first band booked to do it, and then Bowie came in and Floyd came in, seeing that Earl's Court was sort of open for business, if you like. That had happened. Um, they'd gone to number one with Squeeze Me, Please Me, the second record to go to number one. So that's on the Sunday night. And then on the Tuesday night, this accident happens, early hours of Wednesday morning. You know, he's in a coma. They have to operate immediately. And it's a choice of, you know, they had to cut through his sort of nasal area. So he lost his sense of taste and smell. But it was like that was the less of two evils. You know, it's either you die or this happens. He's still in a coma where they're deciding they got this gig booked at the Isle of Man, you know, on, on the following Sunday night. And... They all felt the show must go on. So Jim's brother, Frank, um, they were looking for it. And he said, well, I can drum, you know, I'll do it. And, of course, he knew he'd grown up with them. And then there's this picture, which in the book, and there's a series of them, where they're, they're going on the plane to Douglas. I mean, it, you know, you, you'd understand if they were going to play the Ed Sullivan show. Yes, Douglas. Yeah. But they're playing Douglas in the Isle of Man. And they're on the plane, and there's the there's Frank, sort of like you know, I'm going to play drums, and the, the three of them around him look absolutely shell shocked. And mm. if one of their mates is there in a coma at that point, they still don't know if he's going to live or die. And then they go and play, they honour their gig, and then within six weeks he's back at work. It's extraordinary. It is one of the things I like about any book set at this kind of time is it's a reminder of a vanished world yeah and uh, and i love i can't remember which stage of the book it is that they they decide that they're going to go they're going to go five star all the way they're going to go and, and stay at the swiss college swiss cottage holiday inn which is just opened i can remember when the swiss cottage holiday inn opened and you thought, wow, this is this is living. This is living. <laughs> Whereas nowadays, you think it's like a travel lodge. Oh yeah, well, it's, it's a bit like rain. when 
when Don, I think, when he first makes his gets his big check, he goes up and buys a white Rolls Royce and is then photographed drinking champagne, sitting on the bonnet of it. And it's kind of that's kind of cemented that image of kind of, sort of cliched seventies success. They did everything they were expected to do. <laughs> they did, but what was interesting was Chaz was very, very, very tight with the money. You know, he and he worked the band, you know, within an inch of their life. So there's not. You know, there's not acres of unreleased stuff because they had to go into the studio with the material ready yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and out. And there was this thing, they, you know, they used to stay in the, the Edward Hotel in Paddington <laughs> and drive in their, their Vauxhall Velux van up and down, you know, when they could have done, you know, could have afforded more. And, you know, Boland's around in his Rolls Royce and all of that. But that's what sort of kept them going, that sort of, you know, parsimonious streak uh, and like mm. the, you know, they could have stayed in the Hilton when they played, uh, you know, when the Hilton was something, or on yeah. Park Lane when they did Earl's Court. But they went to, you know, it struck me also was talking about the the, the, the the things you just forgotten really that in '73 around there, <laughs> a lot of the success seemed to be something to do with the fact they keyed into the 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 popularity of football wasn't it mm. that sort of football fans there's a bit where Nick Kent sees a bit Earl's Court I think, and describes the fans arriving at Earl's Court they're all chanting and they're behaving like football they are football fans actually and actually they weren't particularly associated with football but no, they did they didn't really like well football, they? they did but I don't know if they were absolutely campaigning for it well they? no I mean it was interesting because I sort of you know when when I went into it I had an assumption that they would either be you know big Wolves fans or big Walsall fans. And they weren't. They were sort of indifferent to football in a way that I think you could be if you were, um, uh, you know, in music at that point. And I yeah. mean, you remember... Well, the Beatles were indifferent to yeah, football. Yeah, Beatles. Yeah. I mean, you had Macca wearing that rosette team. on the mad day out. Um, and then he came out with a classic, I support both teams, you know. So, <laughs> okay, fair enough. But, you, you know, I mean, I remember... Uh, when John Savage did his 1966 book and he did a talk and someone said, well, you know, do you mention the World Cup? And he said, yeah, it's two lines. Football was something other people did. It was true. Yeah, it's true. And it only was the 90s with this great, you know, we all must like American football. Um, So the thing was, they didn't. The the only, the real football fan was Frank, who was Jim's brother. He was the season ticket holder at Molyneux. And, and you know, Jim would go with him like a mate comes with you to see a a band you really like and you want a plus one sort of thing and, you you know, no one's available. He would do that. But no, they weren't. And it was later when, you know, they were desperately trying to find a route back into the chart that, you know, they said, well, we've got a big football following. Let's do this record. Give us a goal. Yes. Which you know, I do. I urge all of your listeners to go and YouTube the um, the video for it because it is just it is everything football in the seventies used to be, just freezing cold in a tin tin lidded stadium with a ball enamel pitch. cup of bovril. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just you know, p- pitches with acres of brown in them. Uh, stanchions, everyone looking bloody miserable and, and just standing there out of some sort of misguided, this is what we must do on a Saturday afternoon. And it's filled, and now they're a glamour club, but Brighton and Hove Albion, 
you know, because it was near Chaz. Yes. And it's and they're so cold. And this is Dave Hill's got the bald head at that point, and he's wearing a this is, the, this is the Goldstone ground, isn't it? The Goldstone <laughs> ground indeed. Now um, a, a long memory. But you know, you can see the wind whipping in from the, the sort of chimble <laughs> on them and and there's a, and it's intercut with a bit where they're playing football. And they they just all look so miserable. And Jim looks miserable anyway. But I mean, Jim looked really miserable. And Dave, bless him, he's giving it, you know, 100% showbiz. But even he, you know, February 1978 in Brighton. Yeah. So, but no, coming back to your point, Mark, sorry, I got the, yes, the football thing, you know, that the terrace chanting yeah, and all of that, that was what their fans, you know, did. The, the football fans really, really connected with Slade. And, yes. Uh, and it made a huge difference, I think, you know. Yes, definitely. So, look, there's the book. Um, mm-hmm. Whatever happened to Slade? When the whole world went crazy, of course, <laughs> has to be doubly the you know the official uh, Slade misspelling. And here's one without its clothes on. Nice. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, thanks very much for talking to us about it. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Hey.